The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and postpartisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, here's your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. Welcome to the first post-Thanksgiving edition of the Reimagine America Radio Hour. I'm a businesswoman, not a politician. I solve problems. I don't make them. And years of experience has taught me to look at the numbers before listening to the various participants' words. And that's where we are going to begin today. The Associated Press reports today the following presidential election totals. President-elect Biden has 306 electoral votes. He has 51.3% of the popular vote, which amounts to 81 million plus votes. President Trump has 232 electoral votes. That's for, and he has amassed 47% or actually 46.9% of the electoral vote with about 74 million votes. So those are the first numbers. We've had four ballot recounts confirming voting machine totals in four states. You, in those four states use a variety of electronic voting systems. And they have a variety of individual state laws about how the ballots are processed and how the ballots are counted and how the ballots are handled. Okay. And again, four paper ballot recounts have confirmed voting machine tallies in four separate states using a variety of electronic voting systems. It should also be noted that no electronic voting systems, none of the tabulation software is connected to the internet. And that's done with malice aforethought. This election has a paper trail for 99% of all the votes cast in the whole election. You know, in, you've heard a lot about Dominion, prints out a paper ballot. So you as a voter have a ballot in your hand and you can see the votes that you have cast. And so you can make sure that it's the vote you wanted to cast, okay? So for every single vote that was tab- was cast on one of these now highly uh, politicized Dominion voting systems, there is a paper ballot. 40 some lawsuits, oh, and, and it is those paper ballots that are used when you do a hand recount. And when the hand recount and the machine count are the same, it means you have an accurate total of the votes. 40 some lawsuits. I've lost count of how many jurisdictions um, have have had those lawsuits brought, but there've been more than 40 and they've included state Supreme Courts, U.S. District Courts, U.S. Circuit Courts, and one even reached the Supreme Court before being returned 
to the state Supreme Court. 39 of those suits ruled against the president outright and with prejudice. And one Pennsylvania suit did allow the Trump observers to move two feet closer to the counting tables in various counties. Those were observers in addition to the party observer from each party and an independent who observe at every single table in those um, where election ballots are being counted to make sure that everything is accurate and above board and fair. At some point, in fact, and, and in addition, because we, we wanted to make sure that this election was transparent, um, and because there was a lot of mail-in ballot activity, um, several of the big states, including Pennsylvania, Michigan, I'm not sure about Wisconsin, um, had, elect uh, I know Arizona did, had a electronic, you know, a camera running so that you as a voter could log on to television and watch the ballots be counted. Okay, so everybody wanted everything to be, um, people to be satisfied with the vote. Okay, so 40 some jurisdictions have tossed out um, with prejudice um, suits that had no evidentiary backing. And so it really comes to a point where you have to say at some point by the numbers, enough is enough. Those numbers are not going to change. You know, it, it, in this way, it does resemble uh, Florida in 2000, where Bush was ahead every single time that we counted, but we just kept recounting until finally the U.S. Supreme Court said, well, but you're at your deadline, um, your state mandated deadline to certify your vote, so you can't keep counting ad infinitum. Because you know what? In 2000, the hanging chads were still hang hanging. And in 2020, we've now recounted the votes and recounted on mach by machine the hand recount. And we still get the same number. It is, states are now certifying their results as true and accurate. Um, yesterday, Mark Kelly was sworn into the United States Senate, replacing uh, John McCain uh, in, in that Navy seat that was held briefly by the Air Force. That's a, that's a visual representation of the accuracy of the count in Arizona, despite whatever uh, hotel uh, room presentations uh, Rudy Giuliani made this week. So at some point, at some point, enough is enough. You got to stop and acknowledge that the numbers are not going to change. And the states are rapidly certifying the, their results as true and accurate. And that has to be completed by, I believe, the 10th, Monday. Um, and the Electoral College will meet on the 14th. So the days are slipping away. It's 10 days left from today before the Electoral College meets. 
So with all of this evidence, with all of these numbers, numbers don't lie. Numbers are, you know, they are or they aren't. They're, they, they exist or they don't. In spite of all these numbers, there isn't even a grudging concession by the president, despite the vice president swearing in Arizona's newest senator yesterday. There is no um, concession that 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 should that should be interpreted by anyone who's thinking it through as a concession that the numbers don't lie. The election is over um, and the same election software that counted up the Senate ballot ballots also counted the presidential ballots and one cannot be wrong if the other one is right. However, what we got yesterday was not any form of change from the White House, but rather the president giving a 46 minute, President Trump giving a 46 minute video recorded rant that was a summary of all of the claims of conspiracy and fraud that have been made on Twitter and debunked by the many courts we've mentioned before. And on that very same day, on that very same day that this speech was recorded in the diplomatic room of the White House with no reporters and no visitors present, on that very same day, 2,875 of our fellow citizens died of COVID-19. That's a one day total. Let me repeat that. Yesterday, 2,875 of our fellow citizens died of COVID-19. That's a one day total of nearly 300,000 Americans who have died since March of this deadly pandemic. But let's remember, let's hold on to that 2,875 number for just a moment and compare it to other moments, one day death tolls. Pearl Harbor, for example, 2,400 Americans perished on, on Pearl Harbor Day, at Pearl Harbor in a single day. Or let's compare it to 9-11, when 2,700 Americans perished in the Twin Towers in New York, and more perished in a field in Pennsylvania and at the Pentagon. In those two previous incidents, 2,400 died on December 7th, 1941, 2,700 in one in the Twin Towers on 9-11-2001. In both those previous instances, the American presidents and Congresses of those times, response was to go to war. In this instance, the president, in his 46-minute speech and in his 
speech last night in the Rose Garden or in on the White House grounds to a crowd of holiday revelers invited to a White House party, the president didn't utter one single word of acknowledgement, concern, encouragement, or hope to the tens of millions of Americans who are suffering from COVID-19 or the 2,875 who died yesterday. He's also not called congressional leaders to the White House to pound out a COVID relief bill for the 20 million unemployed through no fault of their own, whose benefits and moratoriums will expire on December 31st. Nor has the president worked with Congress on a continuing resolution to continue our government's ability to operate after its spending authority runs out on December 11th. Nope, nope. It's all video rants from the White House diplomatic room. And then, and, and it will be repeated again tonight at one of the 25 mask-free holiday parties that the White House is hosting between now and Christmas. That's more than one a day. All of them in Washington, D.C., most of them in indoors, all of them maskless and attended by House and Senate members who come mainly from the Midwest, but also from the East Coast and the West Coast. Um, you know, Kevin McCarthy will have to remember that when he comes back from these White House parties, he will have to serve a 14-day quarantine in California, and we'll all be watching Kevin. The fact is that all the president is doing is putting all of his energy into holding on to a job he clearly doesn't even care about doing. That's part of the puzzlement. NBC reported today that what coronavirus task force activity is going on in the White House is, you know, it is slapdash and it's being the chaired now by Jared Kushner and a couple of his friends and a few of the doctors who are desperately trying to be the Dutch boy putting his thumb in the dike. If we look at the president's behavior since November third alone, well, we've got an explanation about why so many Americans voted for change. You know, they want someone to focus on what's important to them, not to that person. Saving lives, saving individual lives and saving collectively our economy and as many lives as we possibly can is the only mission right now that matters. And that's why the AP polling as of today shows Joe Biden's approval rating rising to 55% as he soberly assembles a cabinet of experienced, um, and excuse me for repeating myself, but sober professionals. Um, realists, pragmatists. And in the meantime, Trump's approval has slipped to 42%, with even the number of Republicans who disapprove of his performance rising, doubling from 6 to 
So that now means a quarter, if you also count the folks who um, changed their registration or crossed over and voted for Biden, that means about a quarter of Republicans now um, disapprove of the president's performance. And let's think about just one last number, because I think it might help to explain a whole lot of the actions above. And that's $207 million, which is the amount of money the Trump Legal Defense Fund has raised since November the 3rd from, you know, individual donors, you know, small money donors who, who really, you know, press themselves to help what they believe to be a noble cause in the president's legal defense fund and don't realize that 80% of that money goes into a discretionary fund that the president can use for anything from retiring his campaign debt to announcing a 2024 run to paying his personal expenses. Only a teeny tiny fraction of all that money is going to pay for Rudy Giuliani's $20,000 a day retainer. And one would think for $100,000 a week that Rudy ought to be able to afford a better hairdresser who knows about permanent hair color products. I'm sorry, that's a bit catty, but it's also kind of a segue. Because if all those numbers from $207 million collected from the innocents uh, to 2,875 people dying of COVID yesterday, if all those numbers are not enough, then there are also some words that concern me. Joe DeGeneva, who is part of the Trump legal team, a frequent Fox commentator, and a former U.S. attorney. In other words, somebody who knows better, who is a member of the bar and has a duty to adherence to an ethical code. That gentleman, oops, that person said that Chris Krebs, the fired uh, head of uh, CISA, the cyber uh, infrastructure portion of the Department of Homeland Security, that Chris Krebs should be taken out at dawn and shot. And I'm quoting, not shot because he screwed up his job, which was to coordinate in part all of the efforts and to make sure that nobody could tamper with the election <clears throat> infrastructure or, or um, software across 50 states and territories. Okay, he pulled off Chris Cribbs and his team across the United States, pulled off the most secure election in U.S. history. And he, in the words of DeGeneva, should be taken out at dawn and shot for issuing a statement in praise of the 50 state election teams that pulled off a very successful election under incredibly difficult circumstances in the middle of a pandemic and while nation state actors tried to interfere. For his efforts, for being successful in pulling off a clean election and having the temerity to actually 
issue a statement in praise of the 50 state election teams, he should be taken out at dawn and shot. That's not enough. It seems that a young contract worker who was working for Dominion Software in Georgia, just the kind of young IT talent that every state government should want to employ because they need new and modern technology and they need people who understand how to use new and modern technology, okay? So instead of encouraging this young person, okay, um, he found a noose swinging on his front porch after being seen in a video moving data from one from a tabulator to a computer that actually reads the tabulations and summarizes the results. He was doing his job. And for that, he is threatened with lynching in the proverbial old Southern tradition of the KKK burnings and lynchings. Now, the governor of Georgia, a loyal Trump Republican, the Secretary of State, another loyal Republican, and Gabriel Sterling, the election systems manager of Georgia, who is yet another loyal Trump Republican, have all said in response to the death threats, this must stop. Gabriel Sterling came to the microphones first and said, this must stop. But those threats are not unique to Georgia. They've occurred in every swing state. They threaten not just the elected officials, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, who are responsible for conducting a free and fair election, okay? But for example, in Arizona, sheriff's deputies had to escort poll workers. I mean, you know poll workers are volunteers? And election clerks, these are people who are paid, you know, more than minimum wage, but not a whole lot more to work long, hard hours under a lot of stress. And in Arizona, sheriff's deputies had to escort those people to their cars and off the county property to protect them from armed mobs. You know, we don't conduct elections in the United States that way. This isn't democracy. The whole world is looking on and going, what the heck happened? The language of rigged elections is a term of art that began not with the razor thin 1960 election between Kennedy and Nixon. No, and it didn't come from the recount of the recount of the recount in Florida in 2000 either. Nope. The concept of rigged elections began in 2016, and it must end in 2020, because not since the Civil War, a war that was fought and, and had the highest casualty rate of any war the U.S. has ever been involved in, a war fought to preserve the Union, to draw us all together once again. Not since that war have we heard calls that a president should declare martial law, 
suspend the Constitution and send the United States military into the streets, which is, by the way, would mean that we have now suspended all of our laws since there are laws against sending the US military into the streets. And then say these folks, then we should have the US military conduct a revote. Now, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be a, an opportunity for vote suppression? You know what? I think we might get a bigger turnout than ever before because the US military is nonpartisan and they're straight shooters and they understand and appreciate the need for nonviolence. But that's a little aside that detracts from the basic point, which is not since the Civil War have we heard calls for a president to declare martial law, to suspend any portion of, and, and, and in the Civil War, it was not martial law. It was only the suspension of habeas corpus in the case of um, spies and um, traitors. The U.S. military is not going to conduct a revote. But this call came from General Michael Flynn. Yes, the newly pardoned former National Security Advisor, Lieutenant General of the United States Army, Michael Flynn. And when a U.S. general retired, talks about declaring martial law in a circumstance where a election was held and there was a winner and there was a loser. In other words, the people have spoken. When somebody publishes a letter with those thoughts, it has some really scary authoritarian notes about it. The concept of the peaceful transfer of power is a fundamental part of the infrastructure of this democracy. It speaks to the legitimacy of our electoral processes. It puts country above party. The peaceful transfer of power, when someone wins and someone loses, that peaceful transfer of power is one of the highest forms. You know, when the, when the outgoing president escorts the incoming president to the inauguration and they walk down the steps of the Capitol together at the conclusion and the new, and the new president waves off the old president who's um, now on um, the helicopter version of Air Force One, taking one last tour over Washington, D.C. That ceremony, that moment, is one of the highest forms of patriotism in this land, that peaceful transfer of power. And we cannot allow the personal peak of a single individual or the shallow, callous, insincere bleatings of politicians who value their personal power over either their pride or any kind of principle. We can't allow them to put at risk the fundamental democratic infrastructure that made the United States of America the world's single superpower. I awoke on November 5th, optimistic that the American people had acted smartly. I said it then and I'll repeat it now. The American people, a center-right majority, 
voted for divided government, the sort of government that could achieve compromise on major issues that confront us because divided government is intended by the people. I mean, through most of of the last century, you know, since Roosevelt, divided government has been the check on each branch. The American people like it because it forces people to work together. They've sent the message, guys, get out of your bunkers. We want compromise. Guys on the right and the guys on the left are not gonna get what they want. That is why Joe Biden was the Democratic nominee, because he's a centrist, because he's a legislator, because he knows how to achieve compromise. Because for four years, we'd had none. And for the four years before that, we had very little. And it's resulted in a slowing of our economy and a lot of other problems, a lot of problems, starting with the pandemic. If we don't solve this pandemic, we can't move forward. And the first issue that has to be tackled now is validating the vaccines that we believe are coming down the pipe and then distributing those to a huge population, which because it's become so politicized is extremely uh, skeptical of that vaccine. And we need it. We got to solve this pandemic. But that's not enough. Our economy doesn't snap back at the end of the pandemic. We're going to lose a lot of small businesses. Small businesses are the backbone of America. But it's more important than that. We have an economy which for too long has been way too dependent on consuming rather than making products. And it's been too oriented towards service. And this pandemic has definitely demonstrated that a service-based economy is extremely vulnerable to these natural force shocks. We've got to build a different economy. And that's going to require compromise. We have a climate crisis, folks. We can't deny it any longer. Take, for example, that we are, our weather people are now predicting there will be no, zero, none, no significant rainfall or snow in California during the entire month of December. That's a full-blown capital D drought. We didn't used to have drought every two years. We're having forest fires in December in California. Yeah, our climate didn't used to be that way. Climate, the climate crisis is real. It's fixable if we all work together, but it's going to take compromise. Our natural defense requires renovation and renewal. There's going to be some give and take in how we accomplish that mission. Infrastructure modernization. You know what? You and I as voters, we've been waiting for an infrastructure bill for eight years. And we've been waiting for immigration reform for over 30 years. So yes, 
the American people voted for divided government. They voted for compromise. They voted for people to stop thinking about their own power in what Rick Wilson likes to call the Emerald City, Washington, D.C., and start thinking about us, about you and me, about our children and grandchildren to whom we do not want to leave, to leave a weakened nation and an enormous debt. And that's going to take compromise. But a month later, a month after this election, my optimism has been diminished merely to hope. Hope that somehow, some way, this post-election period can be brought to a peaceful and successful conclusion with an emphasis on peaceful. As Louisiana Senator Bill Cassidy observed on an MSNBC interview today, his friend, Congressman Steve Scalise, also of Louisiana, nearly died of a gunshot wound that resulted from the overheated rhetoric of the 2016 election and the continued crisis of legitimacy that spilled over into 2017. I know, I was in Washington that June morning when Scalise and several other members of Congress were shot and Scalise came really close to dying. I heard the first sirens while I was walking from the hotel to a meeting at the Capitol, a meeting that didn't take place that day because the Capitol was quickly shut down. I remember that. It made an impression on me. It made an impression on me to see the capital city of the United States in chaos and lockdown as we all stood together that evening praying for the success of the surgeons who were trying to save Steve Scalise's life. All over politics. Politics are just words. Compromise. It's compromise that gets you action. So, you know, I pray every night. I pray for peace. I pray for peace and brotherhood at home and abroad. But I'm damn sure scared that prayer aside, that we will not finally bring this dismal chapter of our history to an end with violence. That far too many extremists on both ends of the political spectrum feel so entitled to. Thanks for listening to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. You can learn more at reimagineamerica.org. Got a comment or an idea for a future show? Email Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or find her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy or at Reimagine Radio. Take a minute now and go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you love the podcast, donate and tell others. You can invite Joyce to speak at your next meeting or conference through reimagineamerica.org. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at ricochet.com or c-sweetnetwork.com. That's c-sweetnetwork.com. Together, 
we really can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.